This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, produced by, and performed by me, Brad Lawrence, uh, still doing it from a tiny little side room of a tiny little Brooklyn apartment uh, during a pandemic with children playing outside and sirens going off in the distance. But still, I thank you for coming back every week to hear a new episode of Maxine's Ongoing Adventures. And so, with no further ado, here we go to the next episode of Maxine, The Planet's Unknown. This is episode 16, chapters 34, 35, and 36. From the outside, Lieutenant Laurent seemed to take it well, but Sumner knew better. She had popped out of the cryogenic chamber with comparatively little damage, which he assumed was in part due to the fact the chambers were built to take a lot, though he could report that at least one angle of impact was certainly a weak point, the fact that she had hit deeper water than the others, and that she was properly strapped in. It became obvious as they inspected the other pods in the immediate area this was not the case for most of their inhabitants. They found six others nearby. Four of them were pretty much as intact as Laurent's own had been, but the passengers had been essentially loose inside. No straps in place. Laurent had told Sumner that the chambers came equipped with impact foam that expanded in the case of being jettisoned but only if the straps were in place. The straps coming home was how the pod knew that there was someone inside. She said all of this with the kind of languid distance that kept Sumner watching her closely, waiting for her to either break down or go berserk. It seemed to him that either would be an entirely reasonable yet totally inadequate response. But throughout their search, she'd been quiet, the only sign of distress being an increasing rigidity and the fact that she kept getting paler as each new piece of the reality she had woken up to fell into place. Like Sumner, the effects of the planet's pathogen seemed to be wearing off with astounding rapidity now that she was outside of the immediate vicinity of the Contiki. This meant that her situation had to be coming at her now with a kind of screaming clarity that she hadn't experienced since just after landing. What she was waking up to was that she was now stranded on a planet she had meant to spend a total of three to six months on, and her chances of ever leaving it were very, very slim. The planet in question, was actively trying to kill them, and its first attempt had been drugging them all into mental instability, which is why the last couple of weeks of her life were now coming at her in hazy half-memories like lost time, and all of which had culminated in a premature launch which had, it was increasingly likely, killed every single person she knew by name in the galaxy. Sumner could not tell if she remembered the fact that some of those people had died due to Laurent's own delusional decision-making, and he was not going to bring it up. She had absorbed each of these pieces of information like he was throwing pebbles into a well. 
She stared out about three yards in front of them and nodded, getting stiller as she took it all in, all of it bad to horror-inducing. Sumner attributed this to a combination of shock and a soldier's ability to compartmentalize trauma for later self-destructive use. It was also why, up to this point, Sumner had not pushed her too hard to get moving in spite of his own impatience to do so. She needed to assess the situation and search for her people. He got that. As they had checked the pods, Sumner explained the relevant information. Planet hostile, spores that affect your mind, Maxine the only person that had left the ship of her own free will. Now that they had found their sixth dead body and there was no other sizable wreckage in the immediate eye line, Sumner felt like it was time to get the lieutenant on task. They were looking at a young Asian male in a capsule. He was dead, though not quite the mess that the others had been. But the angle of his neck told you that there was no need to open the lid. Again, he was not strapped in. Laurent stared at him. Asakura. She shook her head. I don't understand it. We do jettison training drills every single day for two years. He should have been able to strap in with his teeth in the dark. This planet does terrible things to your mind, Sumner said. You really do not know what you are doing. Laurent nodded. Sumner said, Look, my daughter is out there, and I gotta find her. I gotta get after her. I understand if you need to stay here and keep sorting this out, but I have to go. Laurent nodded again. I'm with you. Let's find your girl. They turned back downstream, and Sumner took the lead. Shock and a soldier's training, that was true. But what Sumner didn't know, and Laurent herself didn't realize, was that the pure rage that was her father was still alive inside her. He'd been buried under training in time and distance, and believing that she was over the crimes of people who had been dead for who knew how many decades. But he was still there, and he was now awake and climbing his way to the surface. For the time being, all Sumner could do was wonder what the collapse would look like and when it would come, and just hope that it happened after they found Maxine. Chapter 35 Part 3 Maxine Light, sun, Heat. Heat from outside, heat from inside. Cold. Everywhere. Movement. Whirling, turning, rotating, revolving. Always in the dark. Always in the light. Pulling. The sun pulled. The sun dragged at her. Force pulled her in the opposite direction. Pulling and pulling and her in the middle. Spinning and moving and revolving and turning at such incredible speeds. Everything grew. Grass, trees, mountains, continents, growing and pushing and moving and forcing and expanding, and she felt it all. 
just as she felt the other living things, the crawling and the wriggling and the things that flew and moved through the air and the things that ran and smacked the soil and the things that clung and the things that leapt and the things that slinked on their bellies and they were warm and the soil was cool unless it was the part of her that seemed to be always in the sun and that part of her, the soil burned and parts of her that seemed to be almost never in the sun, those parts of her froze and she was all of these things. She was every temperature and she was every still place and every rushing river and every flaming crack and all the things that crawled and flew and ran and they were afraid and she was afraid and when they were hungry she was hungry and when one was afraid because the other was hungry she was both of these things she was the one that ate and the one that got eaten and they were the same to her, and tiny and distant and temporary and always with her and forever present, as they were her, and she always continued. She was the air that moved in and out of afraid and the, and the hungry and the eaten and the eater, and she flowed across the land and never stopped moving, and where it was a gentle lull, she was a gentle lull, and where it was a destructive wind, she was a destructive wind, and she was all of these things, spinning and turning and rotating and being pulled and pulled and pulled. Maxine opened her eyes, rolled over, and tried to vomit again. There was nothing in her stomach, so this was mainly a wretch accompanied by some watery bile. She was holding on to the ground. There was a spinning that was only getting worse. She closed her eyes against the vertigo and started breathing deeply. At first, there was no effect, but as she forced herself to slowly drink in the cold air of the cavern, the spinning began to ease. She could sense Mr. Humphreys watching her. She could also sense the self-satisfied look on his face. I told you so, he said. Maxine mustered up a weak retort. It's rude to say I told you so. I know, said Mr. Humphreys. What had she expected? She had figured out that she was dealing with more than just an imaginary badger from a children's book. She knew that he was the eyes for something else. She got that from all of the lives it had put into her brain. But if pressed, she couldn't say what she thought was in there. An alien? A ghost? Some kind of spirit? Whatever she had thought, she had not thought this. She suddenly realized that she was afraid. She'd felt so many things this day. Why hadn't fear been one of them sooner? And what was she afraid of? What was, was she afraid of Mr. Humphreys? That the thing that was pulling his strings might be some kind of monster that wanted to eat her? Was she afraid of death? Or of never seeing Sumner again? Maybe she should be afraid of those things. Maybe she even had been, but that was not the fear that was fighting its way to the surface now. Now, she was afraid of losing herself. She was afraid that after all of this, she wouldn't be her anymore. She would be stretched all out of proportion. And maybe that had already happened. Maybe she had realized what she was losing when she was already past the point of no return. But this roiling global consciousness, for she now understood at least the shape of what this was, it seemed different from the discreet lives she had been given before. 
lives with clear parameters that a girl like her, someone who understood what it was to begin and to end, to be finite, whose point of view was tied to their small one-track perspective, those were lives that she could comprehend. This was a different order of magnitude. She had gone from 15 to centuries in a matter of an hour, but this was a totally different scale and it appropriately terrified her. But there was something else, something alongside that terror. It was a sense that this fear was familiar, that she had faced something like it before, not exactly and not nearly of this size, but she had been pushed through a door into a new life before. She'd had what she knew of herself and her world radically altered before, not in a way with such scope and not in a way so intimate, but she had been forced to face a situation that she could neither comprehend nor deny, and she had come out the other side. She was a 15-year-old girl born on a spaceship. She was a hive crewman serving a queen. She was a living solar sail that traveled the stars. She was an engineer that loved her family and her society enough to make the ultimate sacrifice. She wondered if she was still just the 15-year-old, would she have run from this? Would she have fled back to the Contiki, which would only be unsafe in the ways that she already knew and understood? Maybe. But she didn't think so. We have to do this differently. Mr. Humphreys looked aghast. Miss Maxine, surely you can see that this is folly. You started this, and Maxine stood up, and for a second her head swam. And, ooh, and you're not going to chicken out now. Mr. Humphreys raised an eyebrow. Miss Maxine, I am under no obligation to you or to any of the others that accompanied you here. I would have thought that should be abundantly clear by now. Maxine nodded and then knelt in front of him. Yes, I know what you can do if you wanted to. But you wanted me to understand, and now I want to understand. And this is the only way that's going to happen. Mr. Humphreys didn't say anything. But he also didn't argue. I think we should start at the beginning. The beginning? Yes, you say you're big, but you didn't start out that way. Nothing starts big. So show me you when you were small. Mr. Humphreys looked down and thought about this for a second. It was hard for Maxine to reconcile the massive consciousness she had just gotten that terrifying glimpse of, making this simple and relatable gesture. But it was also being made in the form of an anthropomorphic badger, so... Schmall, Mr. Humphreys said. Yes, yes, schmall. 
The first thing Maxine could remember feeling was a combination of warmth and coolness. The two sensations didn't so much compete as one gave way to the other, depending on things she was not yet quite aware of. It was dark, but notions of dark and light were not as essential to her yet. There was just the sometimes warm and the sometimes cool, and over time a sense that there was a, a pattern to these things. She was also snug. She did not have a word or a concept of soil at that point. In later years, soil would become something distinct in her mind from air, but not separate in function. But both brought her the things she needed. Both cycled between warm and cool. This time in Maxine's deep history was murky for the most part. It was more impressionistic. It was a time of expanding and reaching and doing so deliberately for the first time. Something had happened and she had crossed from a time of just being, of happening, happening the way warmth and coolness happened, to doing and knowing that she was doing and choosing to do and sometimes to not do. She tried to comprehend her own size. She was vast. She was not deep. She was vast and spreading. She felt herself expanding in all directions, though up or down felt more slow. Out felt quick by comparison. She became conscious of the ground around her, the way it vibrated and churned. It was not still, and as she perceived those vibrations, she knew that it would be easier to understand them if she was the ground. And then the ground was her, and she was it. Then she was grass, and then she was trees, and then she was adrift in the breeze, and now she could feel the sunlight. Maxine felt like she had skipped a step. She pulled back sunlight. She had been a layer of this world, something under the soil, or more in the soil, that became fused with the soil, and as plants evolved, they evolved by tapping into her body. She was not diminished by their appetite. She was carried by it, until there was no difference between her and them, and now she was them, and there was more. There was sunlight and air, and they were part of that cycle of heat and cold she had first known, and parts of herself were cast free on those currents, and she was those parts as well as the place they had come from. She could feel the light, but she still couldn't see the light. She both had a concept of sight and no expectation of it whatsoever. The same with sound. She knew it like an echo of a memory, but she had never experienced it, just that sense of vibrations. Then there felt like another sudden skip ahead, a giant leap, and then something. Something happened, a sensation she had never expected, because at that moment, Maxine was breathed. Chapter 36 As Sumner laid out the encounters he had already had, with the vicious mice and the dive-bombing bugs and the river monster, Laurent cursed and grumbled under her breath. Damn, I wish we'd found at least one working gun. They'd had a scout around the wreckage for firearms at Laurent's insistence, but had found nothing intact. 
For his part, Sumner was not sold on the notion anyway, considering they were dealing with something that could radically affect your mind. Perhaps live ammunition was not the best thing to add into that equation. He was also surprised the lieutenant hadn't come out of the capsule firing from both hands in the first place. When he last seen her back on the ship, she and her compatriots had been pretty much shellacked in weaponry. But he guessed it was probably not the best idea to have loose combustible items in a thing whose structural integrity was potentially the only thing between you and a variety of painful deaths. Maybe the same training that had cut through the psychosis with enough force to get Laurent to strap in had also reminded her to store her weapons before getting into the sealed chamber with them. Maybe if you were to do some kind of deep brain study, that was in some way indicative of why she was in a command role in the first place. Some sort of extra stickiness to training and protocol that even her highly trained subordinates didn't possess. Or maybe she wasn't here at all. It had occurred to Sumner that he could not trust his own senses. The planet had already made him forget entire days of his life and repeat certain behaviors, mindlessly. Maybe it could make him believe he was seeing people and things that weren't actually there. Maybe the extraordinary survival of the lieutenant was too extraordinary to be true. Maybe the planet had just wanted to slow him down in some way. Maybe he'd proven too resilient, too hard to kill. So it was trying a different tactic, and this was just a way of delaying him and leading him off the path and into God knows what. Or maybe it was just buying a little time while it set up for a whole different approach to murdering him. Or maybe none of this was happening. There was some possibility he knew that he had just walked out of Sandoval's office and laid down in the street, and everything after that had been a long and terrible dream. Sumner brushed all of that aside. He had no way of testing that hypothesis. He had to just trudge forward and hope that he was really doing the things he thought he was doing and that what he was doing was right. As far as the lieutenant went, he was either on this mission with her, she was someone else he had to take care of, or she was a mentally unstable wild card who would become a problem that he would have to deal with eventually. Only time would tell. As he listened to her footsteps trudging along in the stream after him, he found himself thinking about an incident from his deputy days. The station had received a call from a woman named Ginger Forenza concerning her husband, one Anthony McDee, Tony to his friends. Sumner was not destined to be one of Anthony's friends. When Sumner arrived, Ginger had their two children sequestered in the kitchen while she stood in the doorway watching Tony. Sumner buzzed and Ginger had answered. She led him into the living room where Tony sat on the edge of the couch, staring at the floor about three feet in front of him. His lips were moving, but he wasn't saying anything out loud, and the look in his eyes was like someone who had stayed up all night trying to do every math problem in the world, and now that it was daytime, had found his work still far from over. He didn't look up when Sumner came in. Ginger had said, 
Tony. Her voice was full of concern and uncertainty, but there was also an edge of impatience with whatever this was. Tony, this is Deputy... Gray, Sumner said. This is Deputy Gray. Tony made the vaguest flinch of acknowledgement. Let's talk in the kitchen, Ginger said. She was an athletic blonde woman, which made the dark circles under her eyes and the apparent wariness all the more pronounced. Dark-haired and unshaven, Tony was a little harder to get a bead on at first blush. He was so tightly curled down over his knees that he seemed unnaturally compact, but Sumner felt like he, too, was no stranger to exercise. Once they were in the kitchen, Ginger told Sumner that this had been escalating for a couple of days. Tony had stopped sleeping, stopped answering direct questions unless she asked him at least three times, and then he started doing this distracted, silent mumbling routine. Since that started, the only thing she could get out of him was shouting that she was making it worse and she didn't understand what it was anyway. No clarification about what it was had been forthcoming. However, when she had shouted at him to stop shouting at her, some things had been thrown. With that, she gestured to a shattered antique clock. It hit the wall right next to Jenny's head. He almost hit her. Sumner assumed that the girl at the table was Jenny. He was no psychiatrist, but Sumner had a bit of first responder training, and he was pretty sure he knew what this was. Mass long-distance space travel had brought about a number of changes to human society and consequently to the human mind. On a colony ship, it was generally held that the first generation aboard the ship were the most susceptible to the psychological pressures of spending decades on board a spaceship. Depression, anxiety, obsessive behavior, a fixation on the idea that you had made some kind of catastrophic mistake by going on this trip in the first place. These were all common conditions for a first generation on a century ship. Consequently, that generation was often jokingly referred to as the sedated generation, as so many of them spent the majority of their lives on some level of medication. Following generations were largely better adjusted to the conditions of space travel. This mostly had to do with the fact that there was no point of comparison, no other now lost situation to look back on with regret or despair. You accepted that this was the shape of your world because... It was, and it was the only shape you knew. However, if psychological issues relating to the conditions of life on a century ship were rarer, they did occur, and they came to develop a character of their own, followed by a diagnosis of their own. So anyone who had to deal with public well-being on a colony ship was well-versed in identifying the symptoms of Space-Bound Onboard Confinement Anxiety Disorder, or SOCAD. The early symptoms were restlessness, trouble sleeping, preoccupation, and the occasional temper flare-up. If unchecked, later symptoms included severe paranoia, violence, hallucinations, and a desperate need to get off the ship regardless of the consequences to oneself or others. This, among a myriad of reasons that colony ships were nearly impossible to puncture from the inside or open from anywhere aside from the command deck. Sumner had looked at Tony and decided they were probably fairly early into the situation. 
This had been his first case of SOCAD, so his assessment was based on the textbook, early symptoms presented, and youthful overconfidence. He assured Ginger that the proper meds would take care of the situation and it was all going to be fine. Then he walked over to Tony and knelt down next to him. Hey there, Mr. McDee. Don't you worry about anything. It's all going to be okay. All right? I'm just going to step outside and give the doc a call, and we're going to have this all sorted out by the end of the day. I'm sure of it. Then Sumner stood up, turned his back on Anthony McDee, and started walking toward the front door. He'd made it about three paces when the full weight of the man landed on his back. Sumner was driven to the living room floor, taking all the skin off his nose and cheek when he landed on the carpet. Tony was on his back at that point, screaming bloody murder. You're one of them! Why won't you let me out? You alien bastard! Let me off this goddamn ship! Let me leave! Let me leave! As he screamed, he was pounding on Sumner's back and shoulders and the back of his skull. Sumner's bell was getting rung, and he was one maybe two blows to the back of his head from totally losing consciousness when he managed to get the stun gun out of his inside pocket and to then roll sideways enough to jab it into Tony's calf right below the knee. The man went rigid. His eyes went wide. He made a kind of interrupted hiccuping sound, and then he was out. Later, Sheriff Abidway would read Sumner the riot act. You turned your back on someone with SOCAD? Are you insane? That guy was psychotic. Are you dumb? I didn't think you were dumb, but that was dumb. I know that now, Sumner would say, somewhat pathetically. The other witness to this dressing down was Sandoval, who was a junior doctor at the time. Her superior and predecessor, Dr. Marks, had taken charge of Mr. McDee. Apparently, Junior doctors get stuck giving stitches and applying analgesic patches to the dumb patients. What if he'd gotten a hold of a weapon? What if there had been another antique clock to cave in your skull with? What if Mrs. Forenza had been an avid collector of antique clocks? You'd be hearing ticking for the rest of your life from inside your empty head. Sandoval had let out a small snort at that, and Sumner had given her a hurt side-eye. That had been the last time that Sumner had turned his back on someone whose mental fitness he was unsure of. Until today. He was suddenly aware that Laurent had stopped. She had come to the edge of the stream and picked up a fallen tree branch. She stripped it of its leaves, hefted it in her hand, judging its weight and balance, and then she gave it a few swings. As Sumner watched, it occurred to him, not for the first time, that he did not know this woman. His only reference for her was when she had been pointing a gun at his face. Granted, she had been under a strange influence, but as it was, she had also just been through a trauma for which he personally knew of no previous precedent. And he had to keep moving toward Maxine. Every second was a potentially fatal delay for Maxine and everyone on the Contiki. And this person, who was currently arming herself, was the only help he had on the planet. 
there really hadn't been the time or circumstances to properly vet her for the position of deputy. She looked up at him and nodded that she was ready to continue. Well, they had to keep moving, and Sumner couldn't think of a reasonable way of saying, I'd prefer you not carry that big stick as you walk behind me staring at the most vulnerable part of my skull. So, one more thing to add to the list of things he would need to keep an eye on. He needed more eyes. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.